Please turn with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 4. I want to put in one more uh, plug real quick for a fellows program. If you are a student and you're contemplating ministry, maybe it's a possibility, uh, please come check it out. I think our fellows program is one of the best things that we do, kind of prepare folks for uh, the potential of a lifetime in ministry. Uh, But honestly, even if you're not thinking about ministry, but uh, you're you're thinking, well, I know I'm going to be an engineer, I'm going to be an educator, whatever, uh, I think this is a great opportunity to kind of lay a foundation for a lifetime of ministry, even in that career. Uh, a lot of our fellows go through and they don't end up in full-time ministry, but they just have a better sense of, of preparation, alignment, some skills and some, some knowledge to help them be effective in influencing their workplace or you know, school or wherever it is. So let me encourage you to think about that. The other thing I want to remind you is if uh, you need prayer, there's something that you would like to have uh, prayed for. We always have some folks up front who'd love to pray with you after the service, um, and it's free. <laughs> you don't even have to pay for it. They just come up, come up and pray. Really, I'm, I'm serious. Okay, so here we go. I want to start by giving you a, an excerpt from a uh, college entrance essay. Hey, this is one of the most famous essays that was ever written for college entrance. It's written by a, a guy named Hugh Gallagher. He's trying to get into New York University, and um, he really wanted to set himself apart. All right, so the question that NYU asks is this. Are there any significant experiences you have had or accomplishments you have realized that have helped you to help to define you as a person, right? So he's trying to distinguish himself from all other applicants. And so this is what he wrote. I am a dynamic figure, often seen scaling walls and crushing ice. I write award-winning operas. I manage time efficiently. Occasionally, I tread water for three days in a row. I can pilot bicycles up severe inclines with unflagging speed, and I cook 30-minute brownies in 20 minutes. I'm an expert in stucco, a veteran in love, and an outlaw in Peru. Critics worldwide swoon over my original line of corduroy evening wear. I don't perspire. I'm a private citizen, yet I receive fan mail. My deaf floral arrangements have earned me fame in international botany circles, and children trust me. I can hurl tennis rackets at small moving objects with deadly accuracy. I once read Paradise Lost, Moby Dick, and David Copperfield in one day and still had time to refurbish an entire dining room that evening. I have performed several covert operations for the CIA. I sleep once a week. While on vacation in Canada, I successfully negotiated with a group of terrorists who had seized a small bakery. The laws of physics do not apply to me. I balance, I weave, I dodge, I frolic, and all my bills are paid on time. On weekends to let off steam, I participate in full contact origami. Years ago, I discovered the meaning of life, but I forgot to write it down. I have made extraordinary four-course meals using only a muli and a toaster oven. I breed prize-winning clams. I've won bullfights in San Juan, cliff diving competitions in Sri Lanka, and spelling bees at the Kremlin. I've played Hamlet. I have performed open-heart surgery. I've spoken with Elvis, but I've not yet gone to, gone to college. And so they let him in, right? He, he, he got in. He got in. He graduated in 1994. He was, you know, attempting to show in this letter, I'm qualified to study at your institution, And we're, we're faced with these kind of moments in our lives, all of us, right, where we need to demonstrate our qualifications, for some task, whether it's uh, trying to get into college and writing the application letter or a job application, job interview, trying out for an athletic team or a loan at the bank or dating. You know, dating is basically, it's just this ongoing interview to prove that you're qualified to date that person. And then you have that conversation with the potential future father-in-law trying to prove you're qualified to take on his most precious possession that he's probably not going to trust you with ever, which, you know, you can tell that's kind of been on my mind from time to time. Having a daughter, right? It's all about qualifications. Are you qualified? Now, what's interesting, if you look at the book of Matthew, the first four chapters are all about Matthew demonstrating Jesus is qualified. In fact, his argument in the first four chapters is that Jesus is the one, the only person ever in all of human history who's qualified to be God's anointed one, God's Messiah, the one who will inherit the promises, set all things right, and rule and reign over all of God's creation. Jesus alone is qualified. Now, as we saw last week, his first point is this. Jesus is certified by his birth. He's born at the right time. As God began to create the universe, he flung the stars into the skies, and he aligned them in such a way 
that at a particular point in time, they would indicate the birth of his Messiah. Right time, right place. Born in the city of Bethlehem. Those stars would align at a certain time. They would come and to... to uh, into um, alignment over the city of Bethlehem. The prophets would prophesy there'd be an alignment in this moment and he would be born of the right parents, right time, right place, right family. His mother Mary would be descended from Abraham and descended from David so that he would be qualified to inherit these promises given to Abraham and David in the covenants. And his father would be none other than God himself in a foreshadowing of how the book would end, which is that Jesus would be man, fully man, so that he could die for our sins, but also fully God, so his sacrifice would be worthy to pay for all sins for all times. That's Matthew's first point. Second, that Jesus was affirmed by his baptism. I want you to read with me in chapter 3 of Matthew in verse 13. It says, Then Jesus arrived from Galilee at the Jordan, coming to John to be baptized by him. But John tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he permitted him. John the Baptist has uh, arisen in the wilderness and he's come apparently in the spirit and power of Elijah. He's dressed like Elijah. He's He's a prophet and he's calling everyone to repentance. That is, turn from your current way of life and turn to obedience, particularly obedience to the law. Why? Well, because the king is coming. The kingdom of God is near. The kingdom of God is at hand. The king is here. Get your life ready and in line for the arrival of the king. And in order to do that, as he's calling people to repentance, the outward symbol of that is baptism, which meant uh, I'm listening to John and I'm agreeing with John and so I'm going to align myself with him and his message. And people were flooding from all over Israel to come and align themselves with this message. They wanted the king to come. They wanted to be ready for the king. And then Jesus shows up and he says, it's time for me to be baptized too. And John backs up and he says, not appropriate. Jesus, I'm not even worthy to bend over and and untie your sandal. Why? Because in John's mind, his baptism was a confession of sin. And it was an acknowledgement of repentance. And Jesus didn't need to confess. He had no sin. He didn't need to repent. He didn't need to change his life whatsoever. But there was another significance. Remember, baptism, in a sense, really just means identification with. And so what Jesus is doing is he's identifying himself with John and John's message because John is the forerunner to Messiah and Jesus is saying, that's me. John, that's me. Notice verse 16. After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. From heaven, the Spirit of God declares, This is the one. This is the one. This is my beloved Son. This is the heir to the promises made to David and to Abraham. This is Messiah. He's the one. And then Matthew's third point is this. Jesus is qualified through the demonstration of obedience in the wilderness. Immediately after coming up out of the water, the declaration of the Father, the alighting of the Spirit and empowering, chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Jesus was then led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So I want you to notice here. Jesus' life was in perfect alignment with the will of the Father. The Father has just declared, this is my son. I am well pleased with him. He's following the path that I have laid out for him. And in his obedience, the Spirit takes Jesus into the wilderness to be tested. And I want you to think about your own life for a moment. I think this is true for me. I don't consciously think this, but, it, but, it's, but it's in my mind. It's my paradigm often for my relationship with God. And it's this. If I, if I live in God's will, if I align myself with God's will, if I say no to sin and I say yes to God and I'm walking in humility and obedience, then things will turn out right for me. You ever thought that? If, if I live right, then there will be smooth sailing. 
I may not consciously say it, but when things don't turn out well, or I'm suffering, or I'm struggling, or I'm tempted, I go, something's out of line here. Somehow it seems the contract has been broken. But notice, Jesus is in perfect alignment with the will of God. Men and women, this is the normal Christian life. Peter would say in his epistle, Brethren, do not consider it a strange thing. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you as though some strange thing were happening to you. This is the normal Christian life. Peter knew that too, didn't he? When he made his bold declaration, you know, I'm going to follow you, Jesus, to death. Jesus said, well, actually, you're going to deny me. And you're going to have a hard few days. Because Satan has come and he has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. Or think about the beginning of the book of Job. All the angelic hosts gather in the throne room of God. Satan in particular comes forward and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And then Job suffers. This is the normal Christian life. It's hard. It's a struggle. It's temptation. It's trial. It's testing. It's refining. And when we have in our minds that uh, that's not how it works, that if I align everything right, I won't struggle or suffer, then we immediately suspect, well, somebody who's broken the contract, our first thought is it must be God. Right? And we get angry at God because we've done our part, but God hasn't done his part. Or we get angry at ourselves and say, well, I haven't done enough to get things in line adequately so that God can bless me with no trials. And so I work and I work and I work and I work to gain more of God's favor because the demonstration of God's favor is always that life goes smoothly and easily, right? No. It didn't work for Jesus and it won't work for us. He's perfectly in line with the will of God and the Spirit says, now it's time for testing. And the Spirit compels him and drives him into the wilderness for testing. And so the question is this, if that's the normal Christian life, how do we not just survive, but how do we thrive? How, how, how can we be victorious as we anticipate that this will be the pattern of our life until Jesus returns? Maybe with moments of respite, but the pattern will be testing, trial, tribulation. How do we remain faithful? How are we victorious? Well, we follow the example of Jesus Christ. Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. And, and in my spiritual life, this passage in Matthew 4 is one of the most powerful to imitate. Uh, I've, I have studied this and meditated upon this many, many times. It is, it is one of the most powerful patterns of the way that Jesus lived on earth for us to imitate. In the face of I mean, really, withering temptation. Jesus was unwavering in his allegiance to God, God's goodness, God's will, and he used only the resources that we have available to us. I want you to read with me chapter 4, verse 1 again. It says this, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So, why in this manner and why in this place? Why did, why did Jesus go to the wilderness? Well, if you look throughout the Bible, Old Testament, New Testament, the wilderness is the place of alignment, so to speak. This is where people go to get their lives aligned with the will of God. And so God rescued Israel out of slavery in Egypt and he brought them into the wilderness to get them aligned with his will, right, to set them on a course. It's described in Deuteronomy chapter 8. It says, you shall remember all the way that the Lord all the way which the Lord your God has led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you and he let you be hungry, and he fed you with manna which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. See, God intentionally brought them into the wilderness, into a place where they had nothing but God to see if they would align their lives with God's goodness and God's will. And what happened for Israel? They grumbled and they moaned and they complained. Right? When they got hungry, they got angry. God, this isn't the bargain. And they said, you know, we would be better off to go back to the place of slavery. And so God had to continue to refine that generation and they wandered for 40 years. 
Now, Jesus is brought into the wilderness for 40 days. And what Matthew is trying to demonstrate, if you read chapters 1 through 4, is this. Jesus is the perfect Israelite. Where Israel failed, Jesus will succeed. Where Israel grumbled and moaned and complained and was unwilling to say yes to God, Jesus will give in and he will say, thy will be done. Now, follow his pattern. Right? If you want to live well and live wisely in the wilderness, if you want to have success in the wilderness, in testing and trial and tribulation, follow the pattern of Jesus. Okay, let's read beginning again in verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. The tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him and behold, the angels came and began to minister to him. So how do we thrive? How do we Go through these tests and these trials and emerge uh, victorious. I'm going to give you three ideas this morning. The first is this. You have to identify your adversary. Who's our opponent here? It's Satan, right? It's it's Satan. I'm going to give you five characteristics, very briefly, of our adversary. The first is very simple. He's real. And if you, you don't understand or acknowledge the reality of a spiritual adversary, you've lost already. You know, our our culture creates this caricature of the devil, right? He's in a red cape and he's got horns and we can just laugh all of that off. And in the process, we lose a sense of the reality of the adversary who's against us. In fact, uh, Barna did a a survey, it was 2009, that indicated that I think it was just 35% of self-professed Christians, just 35% believe the devil's even real. If you don't believe in his reality, you won't arm yourself to fight against him. Satan is real. There are spiritual forces. There is a spiritual battle that is is raging in, in a dimension that we don't see, and it is happening right here, right now, and throughout the world. Second, he is intelligent. As we said last week, of all of God's creatures, he's the most beautiful, most powerful, most intelligent, angelic being that God ever created. And you know what? He's had thousands of years to, to study human nature. So we like to think of ourselves as like super complicated individuals, right? And, and I'm, I'm unique, but if someone watches humanity for thousands and thousands of years, he begins to see patterns. And you know what? He probably knows things about you that you don't really even understand about yourself. Because he's studying humanity. He's deceitful. That's his strategy. He understands that we are susceptible to deceit. We believe lies. Sometimes we want to be lied to. And the way that he lies to us is he gives us just a little bit of truth mixed in with that lie, that lie that we really kind of want to believe sometimes. His intention is to destroy us. He is destructive. He lies, he cheats, he kills, he destroys. That is why he came. And he might do that in in very subtle ways, just by trying to get you to become just kind of a nice person who has no impact for Jesus Christ in the world. Or he might try to completely unravel your life with horrible addictions that destroy all of your relationships. He doesn't really care how he does it, but he wants to destroy you. You know, Satan wants to destroy your life and all of your relationships. And he's opportunistic. In Luke's account, Luke chapter 4, at the end of the temptations, it says, the devil left him waiting for a more opportune time. Waiting for that vulnerable moment. And you have vulnerabilities. And Satan is studying you to find 
those vulnerabilities. Which leads to my second point. You need to know yourself. Where are you particularly vulnerable? You know, it says in, in the first testing that after 40 days, Jesus was hungry, right? Yeah. There was a vulnerability there in that moment. You know, Satan is looking for those vulnerabilities. In fact, uh, in Luke's account, it appears that there's actually 40 days of testing. And then these last three that are mentioned at the end, in a sense, are categories of temptations or trials. Okay, three categories. And I want you to see if you can find yourself in any of these categories, or maybe all of these categories, where you have a particular vulnerability. The first is this, the desire to satisfy our physical appetites. Read with me in verse 2. It says, After he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Every time I read that, I kind of It's such an understatement, right? After 40 days, then he was hungry. Probably a little bit hungry on day 39, right? I've I've never fasted 40 days. Um, I won't ask for a show of hands. (laughs) Maybe there's one or two of you super spiritual people that, you know, you can just go now, right? Because you've got got it nailed. I've never fasted that long. After a day or two, man, I'm bad. I'm struggling. I don't, I, it's like least favorite spiritual discipline, fasting, right? Let me pray. Let me read the word, right? Let's get into some fellowship and eat together, right? Let's not get together and fast. I hate, I hate, I hate fasting. Right, so here it is. Jesus has been going 40 days without food and says, then he became hungry. Get really, really hungry. And he has a legitimate need for food, right? The body is designed to need food. It's not superfluous. It's essential. He has a legitimate need for food. We have legitimate needs for for food and for drink and for clothing and covering and warmth and shelter. Those are legitimate needs. We also have, have pleasures that we were designed to enjoy, right? God made this body to be a pleasure center. Think about it. There, there are things that we put in our mouths, they taste good. Well, God could have made all food bland, right? I mean, all of it, it's just like a tube of liquid. That's all you get. It's just all flat. There's no taste. But no, there are things that taste really, really good. There are things that we enjoy touching. We just love the, the texture or smells, the aromas that we enjoy or sights that are beautiful to behold or sounds. We say, that's a, a beautiful sound. It brings, brings pleasure to my heart. God made your body as, as a pleasure center to enjoy things richly, but within boundaries. Right? And outside of those boundaries, those pleasures become destructive. But within those boundaries, those pleasures are wonderful things. And when our senses are, are, are not functioning proper, properly, that's, it's a sad thing. But when they're functioning well, it's just a wonderful thing to be, to be made like we are. To enjoy things so deeply. But when we step out of those boundaries, we experience destruction, right? Everything that's good for us to taste, we shouldn't just eat and eat and eat and eat. Everything that's good to drink, we shouldn't just drink and drink and drink. Everything that's really pleasing to touch, we shouldn't just take for ourselves, right? Within boundaries. Sex is the perfect illustration of this. God could have made it such the procreation within humanity was just a really simple process, right? You ask someone to marry you, you get married, and then you shake hands and you have a baby, right? That's it. There you go. That's the extent of enjoyment. That's not how God made it. Thank God. Right? He made it not just for procreation, but he made sex for pleasure as well. That's a gift from God if it's within the boundaries. And then when it's taken with outside of the boundaries, it's destructive to a person's life. So here is Jesus. He's got a legitimate need for food. And he's tempted And he has the power to make stones into bread. But he says no. Why? Because it wasn't God's will for him in that moment. Does he have the right 
to do so? Well, yeah, in a sense, it's, he could argue it's, it's a legitimate need. I haven't eaten for 40 days. It's time. So you have the power? Yeah, well, he made the entire universe. He made stones and he made bread. He could take it for himself. But in that moment, it wasn't God's will. And so he had to step back and say, you know, all that God has given me in this moment is all that I need. Where did Israel fail? Well, they didn't trust God to provide all that they needed. What did they suspect? Well, they suspected that God was not good, and they actually hated them, and he brought them into the wilderness so that they would starve or die of dehydration. Right? That's why they became angry. They didn't trust God. So in this moment, Jesus says, you know, my highest allegiance is to the will of my heavenly Father. Man shall not live on bread alone, but man shall live on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. All that God has given me in this moment is enough for all of my physical appetites, for all of the pleasures that I desire. All that God has in this moment is enough for me. I just take what he has given. Second, the desire to validate our worth. Verse 5. So then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. And God said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written. He will command his angels concerning you and on their hands they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is what I think is going on in this moment. I think that Jesus is not actually on the top of the temple itself, uh, the the pinnacle could describe a high point uh, anywhere in this area. I think he's actually on the top of the, the Temple Mount, the highest point of the Temple Mount, maybe on the top of Solomon's portico. That's the southeast corner, and right below him is a fall. It goes right down into the Kidron Valley, which is the primary thoroughfare that runs uh, north and south, bisects the city. And this is where the marketplace was. This is where commercial activity took place, uh, social activity took place. This area was always crowded. And so Jesus is now standing there at the pinnacle and Satan says, throw yourself down. And when you throw yourself down, if you're in fact the son of God, angels will come and they will swoop you up. So if you are the son of God, Jesus, prove it. Prove that God loves you. Prove that God cares about you. Prove that you are, in fact, the Son, the Messiah, the Anointed One. Prove it. Validate it. What does Jesus do? He actually quotes uh, from the book of Deuteronomy. And he says, you're not supposed to put the Lord your God to the test. That's a quote from Deuteronomy where Israel went into the wilderness and they doubted that God loved them and cared for them. And so they said, God, prove it. Give us what we want in this moment. Show us our way as we demand of you. And they tested God. And Jesus said, you know, I've already actually received a word from God. It was at my baptism and he said this, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. That's enough for me. Men and women, so much of our time we spend trying to validate our worth. Through our accomplishments, through the words we try to solicit from others, through their affirmation, through everything that we do in the world, we're trying to prove that we in fact have value. And God has said to us, you're my beloved son. You're my beloved daughter. You are in my son, Jesus. And I am well pleased in him and I am well pleased in you. There's nothing that you have to do to earn God's love for you. God declares you're valuable. God declares that you're valuable. God declares you're a son, you're a daughter, you're part of his family. And it's not based upon your own accomplishments. It's based upon his declaration that he's a good and loving heavenly father. So you have nothing to prove to yourself or to the world. You don't have to spend your time chasing after affirmation through all of the different things you try to accomplish or possess. You don't have to do that because you have the declaration of God, your heavenly father. You're beloved. You're beloved. And in this moment, Jesus says to Satan, I have nothing to prove because my father has said, I am the beloved son. So where are you vulnerable? Is it a desire to satisfy physical appetites that you you just have such a hard time saying no? Or are you scrambling to find worth in what you accomplish? Or how you look? What people say about you, their praise? 
Or maybe you're vulnerable in this area, desire to possess for yourself. Specifically, in Jesus' case, without paying the cost. Verse 8. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain, and he showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What I find interesting in this temptation is that Jesus doesn't deny Satan's ability to hand him the kingdoms. He doesn't say, Satan, you don't have that authority. He doesn't say that. In fact, what you see consistently throughout the New Testament is that the ruler of the prince of the air, this God, small g, has all the worlds and kingdoms, in a sense, under his authority right now. Jesus doesn't deny that right now, in this era that we live in, that Satan has immense power. He doesn't deny that. So what's the essence of the temptation? I think the essence of the temptation is that he would take these kingdoms without going to the cross. Satan says, Jesus, all that you have to do is give allegiance to me. You don't have to go to the cross. You don't have to suffer. You don't have to experience that separation. You don't have to experience death. You don't have to go through any of that. I can hand you the kingdoms right now. And and I would argue, I think that that's probably the greatest temptation in a sense that Jesus faced throughout his life. When when Satan uh, was not able to destroy the children, right? He sent Herod to destroy all of the babies and he missed. Then I think Satan changed his strategy and I think strategy became get Jesus to avoid the cross, get him to fear the cross. And in fact, we know from the Garden of Gethsemane that in Jesus' humanity, he did fear the cross, He said, Father, if you can cause this cup of suffering and separation to pass from me, that is what I desire. That's my will, but not your will. Not my will, but yours be done. And in this moment, Jesus made the same choice. He said, no, I I will go through the suffering to get to the glory. I will not grasp and take for myself. And I think really this is what ties together all three temptations for Jesus and for us. Think about it. Jesus, Jesus had the right, he had the power to do these things for himself. Right? He, he had made the universe. He could have made bread. But he chose not to make bread for himself. Why? Because Jesus never used his powers for his own good. Right? He always used his power for the good of others. Right? There were other times that Jesus was hungry, right? And he didn't just immediately go, well, let me feed myself. Remember the, the story of Jesus when he is uh, with the Samaritan woman? They're sitting at a well having a conversation. He has sent the disciples off to get bread because they've run out of food. So they go into the village. They're getting bread. He has the conversation with the woman. The woman leaves and his disciples are coming back up. I'm like, well, I don't know what he's doing talking to her, but Jesus, here's some food. And what does Jesus say? He goes, no, I'm good. Jesus, we're out of food. And they begin to talk with each other like, does he have some food that we don't know about? Did he tuck a loaf inside of you know, his robe there. What's going on? He says, I- I'm good. He said, I have, I have food that you don't know of. I'm like, what are you talking about? Jesus said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me. I- I'd rather be hungry, but be loyal to God. Even though he had the right to make bread for himself, he had the power to make bread, and he would make bread for others, right? He'd multiply loaves and fishes to feed others. He didn't He didn't grasp. He didn't take. Philippians chapter 2. So this is the very essence of the nature of the Son of God. He existed in the very form of God. Eternal Son of God. And yet he didn't regard his equality with God something to grasp. Instead, he emptied himself and took on the human form, even the form of a a human slave, and served, which is just a a mind-blowing concept. It's a beautiful passage to say, This is really the essence of God, creator of the universe, is he's not one who takes and takes and takes and takes. He didn't make make us because he had a need and he wanted to take something from us or receive something from us. He made us so that he could give, right? That's the very essence of the nature of God is that he gives and gives. And so in these temptations, Jesus is tempted to take rather than to give, right? He had the authority to call angels to rescue him and swoop him up. He tells the disciples that later. 
as he's going to the cross and they say, we need to stop this. Don't you realize I could call legions of angels to rescue me from the cross? But I'm not going to do it. The kingdoms of the earth are his destiny. He will rule over all of those. And he could have reached out in that moment and taken them legitimately for himself. But he didn't. He, he, He didn't take. And for each of us, in the moment of temptation, really, that's kind of the essence of, of the temptation is, will you follow the pattern of Jesus and give? Will you say the Father's affirmation of you is enough? Will you say the Father's gifts to you in this moment are enough? Or will you reach out and take for yourself? Or if I can state it differently, will you say, my will, not yours, be done? Will you surrender in each and every moment to God's will for you in this moment, knowing This is the normal Christian life. It's testing, it's trial, it's tribulation. And all that you have to fall back on is the resources that God has given you in that moment. So what resources do we have? I label this section, deploy your weapons, and some of you may, wow, that's that's really very militaristic, right? You're going to, you're going to miss half the audience who are women and they don't like these illustrations, Brian. Don't, don't talk, give a, you know, Give a different illustration, not warfare or athletics, but this is the biblical illustration to kind of shake us up and rattle us. We are in warfare, it's spiritual warfare. And what's beautiful in a sense about the example of Jesus is that he didn't use any weapon that you don't have in his testing, right? When things got really difficult for Jesus, he didn't pull out his deity gun and start blasting away at the trial, he just used the same resources you have. I mean, imagine if he had, right? He's, he's walking along the roadway and his feet are getting tired and sore and his back is hurting and he's got 10 miles left to walk and he says, you know, enough of this. I'll just let the angels carry me for a while. And then he just starts to levitate, right? He just, he's just cruising along. And he goes, wow, that's, to follow Jesus, your feet will never be sore, right? Or he's laying on the ground. It's cold, and he's got a rock for a pillow, and rocks are under his back. And he says, you know, enough of this. I've got the power. Angels, lift me up. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Follow Jesus, and you always get a good night's sleep. Or he's hungry. And he says, let's eat. And a beautiful meal is spread before them. Follow Jesus, and you'll never experience physical hunger. No, he doesn't do that. Right? He doesn't use any resources other than the ones which we have. That's why Jesus' example in Matthew 4 is a valid example for us. So what are the resources that he has? First, the Spirit of God. Read with me again verse 16 of chapter 3. It says, After being baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending as a dove and lighting on him. And behold, a voice came out of the heavens and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Literally, it says in verse 16 that the Spirit of God came upon him. That is consistent with the Old Testament vocabulary where the Spirit would come upon a person for empowerment, right? And they would, they would speak the word of God or they would conquer an enemy or they would write a song of worship and they would praise the Lord. The Spirit of God came upon people and empowered them for a task. It's the same vocabulary used here. It says the Spirit of God came upon Jesus. Acts chapter 10 in Peter's sermon, he said, the Spirit of God came upon Jesus for power. For power. Even the Son of God needed power from the Spirit. Why? Because he lived fully in humanity. He would say of himself, I don't do anything on my own initiative. I don't know anything except what the Father has told me. I don't draw upon any power of my own. I only draw upon the power of the Spirit. Why? Because what the Gospels are trying to lay out for us is this example, this model is, this is how any man or any woman can live in full obedience to the Father, just using the resources that Jesus had. And he didn't use his own resources as the son of God. He used the resources that God gave him. The spirit of God came upon him. Same vocabulary that's used in Acts chapter two. The spirit of God came upon the church. And what happened? The church proclaimed the gospel fearlessly. Even when they were suffering and imprisoned and beaten, they proclaimed the gospel and they performed miracles with the same spirit that Jesus was given. Romans chapter eight, verse 11 says this. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, 
then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is, the power of the Spirit was most vividly demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead. That is, conquering sin, conquering death. And Paul says, that's the Spirit who dwells in you for life. Not for eternal life. That's true. But that's not his point in Romans 8. His point in Romans 8 is for life right now. The Spirit of God gives you the power to say no to sin and yes to the will of God. Say no to your own will and yes to the will of God in every moment. In fact, Paul will go on and he'll say, in fact, it's the Spirit who is the Spirit of adoption that brings you into the family of God so that now you're a son and you're a daughter and you can cry out just like Jesus cried out, Abba, Daddy, Father, rescue me. But how often are we, we just unaware or too proud in the moment of testing to cry out and say, I have nothing in me to conquer this temptation. I don't have the willpower, the strength of character. Abba, Father, Daddy, rescue me by the power of your spirit. And what Paul is telling us in Romans 8 is, you possess a power that is greater than any power that is in the world. Say, well, but, but Jesus didn't have the flesh. No, he didn't. He didn't have that voice that was in his ear constantly saying, go your own way, rebel against God. He didn't have that voice, but he did have a physical body with needs and desires just like ours. And the point that Paul is making and that Matthew is making is that he also possessed, more importantly, the Spirit of God, empowering him. And what he drew upon was the Spirit of God in the moment of testing, just like we can. Second resource is the word of God. Every time Satan comes with a new temptation, what does Jesus do? Quotes the word, right? He quotes the word. And what's interesting is he doesn't say, hey, uh, is anybody around here got a Bible? There's a verse somewhere that says something about, you know, not testing God or worshiping just God alone. Can, I, can, can somebody help me find that? He doesn't say that, does he? Why? Well, because he lived fully in his humanity. So for 30-something years, Jesus had been studying, memorizing, meditating on the word of God. So he knew the right verse in the right moment to combat the lie of Satan. Notice that when he starts quoting verses, then Satan starts quoting verses, but Satan takes them out of context. But Jesus knows the right context, right verse, right time, because it's hidden in his heart. Okay, he owns it. Psalm 119, verse 11. One of the first verses I memorized when I was a kid. Your word I have treasured in my heart that I may not sin against you. Your word have I treasured in my heart. Not just your word I've memorized in my mind, but I've, I've meditated upon it and I've allowed it to bathe my heart and my mind continuously because we're told we are transformed by the renewing of our mind when we let truth sink in. The word of God is living and active. It's powerful Sharper than a two-edged sword, it pierces all the way deep into the deepest division of who you are, soul and spirit. Let it transform you. This is where Jesus goes. And in fact, each time he quotes from Deuteronomy 6 through 8. This story about Israel's failure applied to Messiah's success. Third, he has the attention of God. For 40 days, Jesus has been in the wilderness. And what did Jesus do every time he went into the wilderness in the Gospels? He prayed. Every time that Jesus exited society and went into the wilderness, it was so that he could pray. So for 40 days, Jesus has been in fellowship with the Father. He's been praying to the Father. He's been in conversation with the Father. The same Father whose attention we have any moment we want to just stop and speak and listen to the Father. Fourth, the people of God. That's our fourth resource. And I notice in this moment, Jesus is alone. It's just Jesus and Satan, right? Mano a mano. They're going at it. But when Jesus enters his next really powerful temptation, when he goes into the garden, what does he do? He says, Peter, James, and John, you've been with me for years. I need my friends with me. Now, I've got to go off and do battle alone, but I also need you. I need you close by. And, of course, his friends failed him, right? And some of ours fail us too, but we still need friends. 
We need to find friends who will be loyal. We need to become friends who are loyal. And I'm telling you, if you want to not just survive and eke it out, and if you certainly don't want to be crushed and fail when you're tested and tried, you must have these kinds of relationships. You must. One of Satan's most powerful lies is that you don't need the body of Christ. You can do well on your own. It's a lie. It's, it's a lie from the pit of hell to isolate you. You need people who will speak truth into your life. You need people that you can immediately call up and ask for prayer. You need people that will be there to help you and serve you in a moment. And you need to be that kind of person for others. And so I want to challenge you that you look at each of these four areas and say, maybe God is calling you to make a significant change in one of these areas. Maybe it is that you really don't understand the ministry of the Spirit of God and you need to think about it and meditate upon it and you need to learn to cry out in humility, Abba, Father, save me. Or maybe the Word of God is not actually deeply hidden in your heart. You know about the Bible, but you don't know the Bible. Or you know it intellectually, but it hasn't transformed your worship and your love for God. And maybe this semester, that's where God's Spirit is saying, really, go deep. Go deep. Don't be superficial in your knowledge and understanding of the Word. Or maybe it's prayer. You you know, I don't really have conversation with God. I I don't understand prayer. Maybe you need to study and pray and practice and pray and learn how to really have meaningful conversation with God. Or maybe you're disconnected from the body of Christ and God's spirit is saying, connect. Church, I want to challenge us. I'm just going to assume that the reason you got out of bed this morning is you you want to live a different way. I I got to assume that for each and every one of us, at some level we're discontent with where we are in our relationship with God and we acknowledge we need to to be richer in fellowship with God. We need to be stronger in the face of temptation. I've just got to believe that that's why we came. And if that's the case, then maybe we need to change some patterns and practices and stop believing that things will be different in our spiritual life if we never change anything. They won't. So maybe this change is small or maybe it's large, but I want to challenge you to change some pattern according to the example that you have in Jesus this week. Okay, so how do we apply that? Let me give you one thought here. Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 says this. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has gone through it. And he won. Because Jesus was victorious, we can be victorious. If Jesus had not been victorious, we would still be dead in our sins, right? If Jesus had had failed even slightly in the wilderness, then his sacrifice would not be worthy to cover the debt of our sins. But Jesus was victorious, so our debt is removed. So maybe this morning your application is simply for the first time to say, okay, I get it now. I believe. I believe that Jesus lived a sinless life. And he died not for his own sins, but for mine. And he's the one only, the, just that one unique person who can remove that debt of sins. I believe in Jesus. Maybe this morning you just need to cry out, say, Abba, Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus. Or maybe you need to learn from the example of Jesus. Because he was victorious, we can be victorious. And he set out a pattern for us. And there are specific things maybe that God's spirit is calling you to change or adjust in humility. I want to live a different life. I want to follow the pattern of Jesus. You know, I, I, don't, I don't know what God's Spirit is speaking to any other person. I have a sense of what God's Spirit has been speaking to me as I've been studying this this week. I, uh, I used to be really good at memorizing Scripture. And I mean, I've, I've memorized a lot of it. But I haven't in the last several years. And so... I've really been sensing that the Spirit is saying, let the Word bathe your heart and your mind again. And you know what? It has been the hardest thing in my spiritual life, I think, that I've ever done to get back in that pattern. Like, why is this so hard? I used to love doing it. It used to be so easy. And I've been working on one verse for three weeks. Okay, don't, don't, please don't hear this as a brag, but I've memorized books of the Bible. But it wasn't hard then. I've had, I've had three weeks to do one verse. Why? Because it hasn't been a pattern in my life. 
And Satan is resisting it. That's what I need. I know what God's spirit is challenging me to do. And I can tell you, as a matter of fact, that God's spirit wants to challenge you to take a step in something in your life to live differently and more deeply with him. So I want to give us just a moment. Let's just stop and say, God, Abba, Father, speak clearly and guide and direct. And if you don't have a sense of of what you should do or how you should change, please come talk with me afterwards or uh, Pat and Jeannie Coyle are sitting over here. They'd love to talk with you. We've got folks who'll be down front here to pray. The law box will be here to pray and talk with you about how to take next steps in your spiritual life. But don't leave with nothing changed. Let's take a few moments silently before the Lord, and then I'll close this. Father, we acknowledge we don't, uh, we don't need to hear the voice of man. We need to hear the voice of your Spirit. We need to have humility and courage to respond. I, I pray, Father, that, uh, that even this week that you would stir up our hearts to change patterns in our lives, to enjoy the, the strength uh, that Jesus experienced when he was in the wilderness. I pray, Father, that we would uh, embrace the reality that life is full of testing and trial and tribulation, that you have not promised us until your son returns that all will be well. But instead, you promise us the resources to live well, to live wisely, to live victoriously in a broken and fallen world, and consequently to be a a beautiful, powerful witness to Jesus Christ. I pray, Father, that we would be that, that we would become that. I pray that we would be dissatisfied and discontent with where we are today, and we would hear and follow the pattern of Jesus in our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Okay, next week, uh, we're going to start Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. I love the Sermon on the Mount, so I want to encourage you to read 5 through 7, one sitting. It's not very long. It's a lot shorter, actually, than my sermon, so you can just sit and read through the whole thing. Matthew 5 through 7. We'll see you next week.